0: All right. Ready to go again? Yay. Yay. Okay. (laughs) Another weekend coming up. Yay, right? All right. Two quizzes to do over the weekend. Boo! (laughs) Did them already. Okay, good. Um, Again, there'll be, the two quizzes, the two quizzes will be available through Monday slash Tuesday morning. So I'll give you another reminder on Monday if you haven't already taken them. Uh, Those are both, those are both up and available. Uh, the exam replacement, if you're going to do that uh, extra assignment, that is due on Monday as well. And then everything else is still the same. I did switch. Homework two is, or uh, homework two. Homework two? We're really going back. How about homework seven? Wow. Homework seven, due November 22nd. That's better. We don't want to go back to two again and have to do, hey, do six more. No. Homework seven, then there's only one more after that, which will, be the last, which will be due the last day of class. And then the extra credit assignment and exam four are both the Monday of Thanksgiving week, and article review th- three is due Thanksgiving morning at 6 a.m. So better than do the Friday at 6 a.m., right? Then you're not trying to work on it after you had Thanksgiving oh, dinner. We'll be up, though, for Black You'll be up. But do you really want to be submitting your assignment? No. <laughs> nah. So it's actually due Thanksgiving morning at 6 a.m. So questions? All right. All right. Picture of the day for today is the spectrum of the sun actually what they call a flash spectrum taken during a solar eclipse. And this is that same solar eclipse from about, what is it, about two weeks ago now that we had. And you can see the image of the Sun off to the left there as it's just been eclipsed. So that we've just covered up the entire photosphere of the Sun has been eclipsed and we're seeing the chromosphere, the inner atmosphere around it. And if you take a spectrum of that, and that's what's shown over here on the right, you actually get to see the emission lines from the coronas. You actually see the bright lines here in the red, yellow, one in the green, and one in the blue there as the most, some of the most prominent emission lines. If you just take a spectrum of the Sun itself, you'd normally get a continuous spectrum with absorption lines. You have certain lines absorbed out depending on what is there, what is around, what is around it. When you g- see just that thin gas that is the chromosphere, you actually get an emission spectrum. And you, here you can see hydrogen lines, Hydrogen line in the red. And if I recall correctly, the green was magnesium. So you can see emission from those. And when astronomers first did this, about 150 years ago, they found this unusual yellow line. That's what's present right here. And they couldn't identify it. it. Didn't match up with anything on Earth. Yep, helium. So it was named after the sun. Helios for the sun, so it was named helium. So 150 years ago, helium was unknown so one of the one of the most common common elements in the universe was unknown to us here on earth until about 100 and 150 years ago it's the late 1860s when it was first detected in a spectrum much like this and finally able to identify identified that line and able to identify the element here on earth of course, it's a very hard element to detect simply because it doesn't react with anything. So it doesn't do a lot of stuff. It's not like it combines with any other element or does anything else. So it's very difficult to actually find it. It was first found, again, in something rather similar to this. Now in terms of astronomy pictures, there's another one that's been going around. Everyone's seen the iguana? Did you get to see? Did you see the Martian iguana? Mm-hmm. It's the one that's been coming out now. I, go, I went to the original NASA site, not the ones that other one they've done, but can you see the little iguana down there to the right, t- taken by one of the rovers on Mars? The, the UFO sites, you know, one of the ones that go crazy, they went to the Mars rat a little while ago, but seeing this object here is sort of an iguana with the head there, legs going down. I mean, it's amazing what your eyes will do. Your eyes will try to make patterns out of nothing. Looks like a rock. There's the images if you go search around for the Martian iguana you'll find pictures of that with an iguana next to it trying to compare the two and how, how how comparative they how similar they look. I mean, it's certainly a rock, but the interesting it is interesting what your eyes will do. I mean, you can sit there and look at the clouds and see all sorts of patterns in them. Are they really there or is your mind just making sense out of randomness? And that's really what's going on here. You just have a rock that happens to have maybe some similar features and people have, you know, gone crazy that there's, there's an iguana and a rat. Now how they'd survive in the very thin Martian atmosphere is interesting how you've only got the couple of them, one scattered here and one scattered there, and all these thousands and millions of images that have now been taken. You know, if, there were, if there were Martian iguana running over the surface of Mars, we'd have seen a lot more of them by, by this time. So. But interesting, I thought I'd at least bring that up. So if you want to go see more, you can just do, do a Google search for Martian iguana, and there's all sorts of pictures and blow ups of just this little one. I just went back to the original NASA image here to, to show you. So I, wa- I wanted to kind of mention that, mention that too today. All right, questions? So now they have got a rat and an iguana, and there's several other animals apparently that have been found too. So, yes, ma'am? If we didn't have existed until a while ago. Mm-hmm. How do we have helium in tanks? We, we yes. when it was it was fi- it was discovered about on earth on earth about 100 100 100 and some years ago we finally t- found it here. Well, we didn't have it before. Before that time it was unknown. But is it just like an atmosphere or is it like it's a, in our atmosphere. It's a very small percentage of our atmosphere. Very very tiny. Most of the helium that's on the earth is actually from radioactive decay of elements and is trapped below the earth's surface. When elements decay from heavier elements down to smaller ones, one of the things they do is they give off and what they call an alpha particle, which is really a helium nucleus, two protons and two neutrons, and that that gets trapped then in pockets beneath the earth's crust. That's where we find it find it now. We don't find it much in the in the atmosphere because it's so light it escapes. But that's where, we usually, that's where we usually find it. We'll find it down deep down in the in the earth, stored stored there from you know billions of years of radioactive active decay. But it was tough. It was not anything any knew of, anybody knew of before because it never did anything. So if, the ga- if they find a, find you know little bits of this gas, it wouldn't do anything. It wouldn't react with any other element. You know, if you find hydrogen, it'll burn. If you do anything with, hydro- with helium, it doesn't do anything. It just sits there. It doesn't react with react with anything. Question? Comment. He goes, sir. All right. Well, well, go back to galaxies then. Oh, neon discovered by accident by thing. Well, or that more? I'm not sure. I'm not sure on neon. I haven't checked on neon. It is the next one, but neon will the further down you get the less less unreactive they are, so the more likely they are to react helium will do almost nothing. So you're a little bit more likely to probably have detected neon, but I'm sure it's, there are probably some of the later elements still to have been, been found as compared to things like hydrogen and carbon and stuff that reacts constantly, but I'm, I'm not sure. I know helium was found in the sun, I'm not sure on, on the other ones. Good question though. All right, well let's go ahead and look at some galaxies again then, got a bunch of pictures of galaxies today. And I'm going to go back a little bit. We had looked at originally last time, we looked at spiral galaxies, so I'll get them all up here. Spiral galaxies being classified by their appearance, how they look. So this is originally, as I said last time, how the spectra of the stars were classified was how the spectra looked. So the stars were classified based on essentially how their spectra looked. Galaxies are classified based on how they look and primarily how big their central bulge is. So when you look at this one here, a much larger central bulge, a little bit smaller here, here almost washed out, very little central bulge at all, just down at, the, down at the center there. And they're classified with an S for spiral, easy one to remember, and then they're classified by the size of the bulge, the larger bulge, getting an A, A medium sized one getting a B. And a smaller bulge getting a C. So depending on the size of that central bulge, we classify the galaxy. Now there are certainly things in between. So SA, you can do things between an A and a B. It's not that there's only this type and only this type and only this type. There's a wide range going from really, really big bulges down to essentially nothing. So. You can have things in between and sometimes you'll see things classified as SAB or SBC. Well, it's not quite a B and it's not quite a C, it's sort of in between. So it's classified, sometimes classified that way. But primarily for us all we need to worry about is how, there's, how the primary classification SA, SB, and SC. That's how the spirals are classified. Now it's also related, and I finished up here last time, that it also is somewhat related to the spiral arms. That these have spiral arms. The A's have uh, tightly. Uh, what does it say? Tightly bound spiral arms. So the spirals are all tight, really tightly bound, and these are loosely bound spiral arms. Loosely bound spirals? Hmm? By tightly bound. Loosely bound would be, you know, big flowing spiral arms like that. Tightly bound would be, you know, wrapped around tight and close together. So really open arms, really closed arms. Maybe think of it that way. That a little better? Okay. So that's what I mean by tightly bound. Not bound to the galaxy, but bound to the spiral bound to the, how tightly wound they are. Otherwise, the galaxies are really just the same as our own. I mean, our galaxy is a spiral galaxy. Um, Depending on what classification you look at, some places still classify it as a regular spiral. Some places classify it as a barred spiral, which is the next thing we'll talk about. And it's usually somewhere between a B and a C. I've seen classifications of an SB or an SC or an SBC. Somewhere in that general range, so relatively open spiral arms, relatively wide open spiral arms in our, in our galaxy. Probably some signs of at least some kind of a bar going through the center, so it's actually going to be in the next set of classification. But it's difficult to tell. It's really, our galaxy is much harder to classify than any of the others because we can't see it. It's hard to see it from inside when you can't go out, outside and look at it. We can make some measurements of the gas and motions of the gas and map out the spiral arms indirectly, but you can't really just go see it. You can't just go outside, you know, send a spacecraft up you know, however many hundreds of thousands of light years to a point up above the galaxy and take a picture back down and send that back to us. You know, it's not something doable. We've sent the Voyager spacecraft, which are now just leaving the vicinity of the sun, have been traveling for decades. So in order to travel that kind of distance, we're talking a very, very long time. But what we see in these galaxies, they look a lot like, our galaxy looks a lot like one of these, like some of these ones that we've seen already. Probably the ones with a little bit more open, open arms that, exi- that exist there. So basically spiral galaxies are classified based on the bulge. There's also a relationship Not as good with how well, how tightly wound the spiral arms appear to be. So you see two different things there, mainly the bulge. The spiral arms are the other, sort of a secondary. Now the next one I'm going to show you images of are barred spiral galaxies. So our second second classification type here is a barred spiral, which is going to look like a spiral like this, but instead of the arms coming right out of it, there's essentially a bar going through the center, a straight bar, and then the spiral arms seem to come off of that. So instead of these spiral arms winding down to the core of the galaxy, they come off a bar that goes through the, gal- through the galaxy. The types are the same. Typical types are here, and they're classified as S for spiral, B for barred, it's going to make too much sense now. We're going, to, we're going to confuse everybody because it does make sense. And then an A, or a B, or a C, depending again on the size of the bulge. So large, a large bulge to a small bulge. And you get an idea again here. how the spiral arms are open up here. In the C-type, they're just kind of wide open, almost wide open, sticking out. Whereas in the A-type, they're wrapped around a little more tightly to the center part of the galaxy. So you see that as a relation. But the other thing, the main way they're classified is by how big this bulge is relative to the size of the galaxy. So how big of a chunk of the galaxy does this take up? Big chunk there, smaller here, little tiny, tiny part. Here, so these are what we call the barred spirals, and our galaxy would be something kind of in between, in between here, with a little bit less distinct bar than we see in these. These are nice, good examples. Ours would not have a very distinct bar to it, from the studies that we've been able to make. So, oops, sorry. So that's spiral galaxies. Once you know the one, they're they're classified, and they're classified essentially in the same same way. Now, the next galaxy, erase my little spirals here, is an elliptical. An elliptical galaxy have no spiral arms. So, Distinguish them from a spiral galaxy. They have absolutely no spiral arms, no disk. So spiral galaxies are all flattened down to like a pancake, a disk type of shape. Elliptical galaxies are more like a big ball of stars. They have an incredible range in size, much more than the spiral galaxies. You can have spiral galaxies that are twice as big or five times as big as another. You can have elliptical galaxies. You have some of them that are gigantic, that dwarf our galaxy, having trillions of stars. You can have other of them that have only a couple million stars. So you have a very big range in sizes in these. So you've got the giant elliptical, some that are the biggest galaxies that we know of. And you have little tiny dwarf ellipticals, a couple of which actually orbit around our galaxy, little satellite galaxies of our own. So we have a big range in sizes for ellipticals as compared to the spirals. They also contain very little dust and gas, meaning that there's no star formation going on in these. So no star formation at all in these as compared to the spirals. All the spirals had star formation had gas and dust, they had stars that were currently forming. So no, nothing in, in these. In the ellipticals, you, don't see, you see very little, if anything, so no signs of star formation in billions of years. So you could look at these galaxies and they probably don't look all that different than they did, you know, a billion years ago, they don't look all that different than they did at that time. There are sometimes gas clouds, hot gas clouds, well beyond it, and we may talk about that a little bit later on. There's some, some very clouds clouds of hot gas beyond it, which may have something to do with the way these galaxies, with the way these galaxies formed. Now we classify the elliptical galaxies by how by their shape. And we start off with an E for elliptical. Boy, three in a row, we're slipping. Three in a row that actually you can remember them, right? Spirals are S's. Barred spirals are S's with a B, and then ellipticals are an E. And then, we don't use ABC though. There's actually E0 would be a spherical galaxy. So E0 would be a big, big ball. You know, think of it as a big beach ball, big basketball size for a galaxy, big that shape, you know, very, very round shape. And then, we just work the numbers down. You go down E1, E2 and so on down to E6 and E7. These would be the flattest, more like a football shape. So they don't get really flat. They get, the, they get bigger and they get flatter. But a football isn't a pancake, right? It's still got some size to it still got some width in one dimension, but it, it, in one of the dimensions, but it's, st- but it's a lot flatter than a basketball. So you can think of that. This would be like a big basketball. This would be like a gigantic football. They don't get down near as flat as the spiral galaxy. So there was something different going on in the formation that, first of all, used up all the gas and dust that was there. They must have had some at some point. Otherwise, there'd be no stars. You had to have had gas and dust to make them up. Bless you. So you had to have some, where did it all go has to do with something about how they formed. But in terms of classifying them, we look just at their shape. How spherical are they? From the most spherical to the least. righty. let me see, and that should be next. There's some images of them, not as pretty as the spiral galaxies to look at. Um, they're just a big blob of stars. So there's an example of an E2 closer to being spherical, might be a little bit flattened, but almost a big sphere, uh, down to an E5, more flattened here. So see some kind of variation in them, but there's not a lot to look at. You don't get the pretty spiral arms standing out. You don't get a distinction between you know the core and the spiral arms and all of that. You get just a big blob of stars. So you go again from an E0. Pretty much a complete perfect sphere, down to an E7 and to a couple of uh, ranges in between one two three four five six in between in between those. So depending on how just depending on how spherical they appear to be. All righty, let's see what's next. All right, now I've got to do something to throw you off. I couldn't keep couldn't keep it up the whole whole day. The next type of galaxies are what we call the lenticular. And I got room for one more, Want to squeeze one more in there. Lenticular ga- galaxies, unfortunately, don't use an L. They use an S. They're actually an S galaxy. So they're classified with an S, like a spiral. But they have no spiral arms. So they're classified as either an S0 or an SB0. And you can think of these as sort of like a cross between a spiral and an elliptical. They've got properties of both. They're classified with S, even though they don't have spiral arms because they are flat disk galaxies. So we can make measurements. We can find out that these are flat disk galaxies. But some of them have a bar going through them, like the spirals. Some of them have no bar. But what they don't have is any gas or dust. So they're like an elliptical in that they have no gas and dust, no stars forming currently. That's all gone, but they're flattened down like a spiral galaxy. So they've got a combination of properties between them. And we'll see when we get to a couple slides from now, we'll kind of see where this comes from. But the lenticulars, those are the ones you've got to try to remember. They're an S galaxy, like the spirals, but without the spiral arms. But their classification is given as an S S or an SB depending on whether there's any evidence of a bar going through the center. So, one, two, three, four types. We've got one more type to look at. And sort of like the ellipticals, they're not that much to look at. That's why if we look at you know, pictures of the galaxy, of the photos of the day, you don't usually see lots of pictures of elliptical galaxies. You know, big deal. What is there to look at? It's a big blob of stars. You know, you want, you're more likely to look at a spiral galaxy. You've got the pretty spiral arms to, to look at that stand out. Now the last one is irregular galaxies, like everything else, and irregular galaxies are classified as IRR, irregular, so, except for the one pretty easy, pretty easy set to keep track of. No, no alphabet out of order like the spectral class, spectral classification or anything like that. Irregular galaxies combine a couple of different things. They can just be a blob of stars. So you have something like this, our Magellanic clouds are something like that, that are bar- blobs of stars. No, no discernible pattern to them at all? Thank you. So no discernible pattern, no spiral structure, no elliptical structure, just a blob of stars, essentially. Some of them are irregular, and you get really odd patterns like this. Okay, How do you get a galaxy that looks like almost an ellipse? egg-shaped galaxy there, you know, what's going on with that? That likely is a product of galaxy col- galaxy collisions. So it might have been a spiral galaxy, or it might have been an irregular galaxy that underwent a collision with another galaxy and had its had its shape distorted. So some of them could be related to that. Some of them are just plain, just blobs of stars. What we think now, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, later in this chapter, I believe, or the next one, is that a lot of the galaxies that formed originally formed as these irregulars. So that's how galaxies originally formed. Lots of gas and dust, they are getting a lot of star formation, so they are forming a lot of new stars. But they were small, and then they slowly combined together. And depending on how they combined together, how those collisions happened to hit, did you hit edge on, did you happen to smash straight together? Depending on the the orientation of those collisions, you might have gotten a spiral galaxy or an elliptical galaxy or a lenticular galaxy left over from these collisions. So really it might be that a lot of these irregulars are sort of leftover bits of the universe. What's left over from the galaxies, that, what galaxies looked like a long time ago. And Hubble Space Telescope can look at some of the most distant galaxies and typically what we see, we don't see lots of big spirals, we don't see lots of big ellipticals, we see lots of little tiny irregular galaxies. So that's a lot of what we see in these, is these type of galaxies. So that may be, you know, what our Milky Way was, was whole bunch, hundreds, thousands of these that slowly combined together over many billions of years. What What that will do? I I haven't seen anything. It's really, I, mean, I don't know if there's, there's good enough to be able to tell how direct the collision will be how, and to see what would happen with most of the galaxies. They're so big that it really just depends on the exact mechanics of how they, how things collide and what, what happens when it really occurs. So not being able to tell, I think it's eventually would be, from what I've heard, it would eventually be some kind of merger, meaning that our galaxy will undergo a big burst of star formation as these sets of gas clouds between the two collide together. But whether it will change the shape of our galaxy, likely. With that much, our Andromeda galaxy is a little bit bigger than our own. So likely it will make some major changes to us, billions of years from now. So final still on schedule. But yeah, it'll be something, it'll be something that will really, because of the size of our galaxy, it'll, the size of the two galaxies, it'll make some big, big changes. Exactly what they'll be is a good question. And you've got to come back billions of years really to, to find out. Now, when the other ones, like the Magellanic clouds, which are slowly decaying into our galaxy, you know their orbits, they'll just be coalesced into our own galaxy. Maybe burst out the star formation a little bit, but you got a little galaxy into a big galaxy. It's not going to really change what we what we see here. All right, so let's give you a couple of them here. Let's summarize a little bit. It's a table from your textbook. These are the different uh, properties of the properties of the galaxies. By type. I've kind of left off the lenticulars here. They're kind of in between these two. They don't fit easily into either of these categories. But the spiral galaxies are very flattened and either have no bar or do have a bar, but they're flattened down to a very thin disk. Now, not paper thin, but essentially, if you want to draw a galaxy on a piece of paper, it is about that thickness. If you want to draw it to scale, to scale it would be about that thin. Um, obviously there's light years, you know, thousands of light years across and thickness even in the narrow dimensions, but if you draw that to scale they're very, very thin. They've really been collapsed down quite a bit. They have a lot of uh, young and old stars as compared to the elliptical galaxies. Elliptical galaxies, no disks, just all kind of spread out throughout the galaxy. All very old stars, young and old stars in the spiral galaxies. So star formation is ongoing in the spirals. In the ellipticals, it hasn't occurred for billions of years. So no young, no young stars. Remember the O and the B stars? They live a few million years, five million years, 10 million years, Well, after billions of years. With no star formation, they're all long gone. The only stars left are stars like the sun. Right? So those are the main sequence stars left in these galaxies. The big bright stars in them would be the big red giant stars the ones that have already left the main main sequence. But all of the big stars, the blue ones that we see highlighting our spiral arms, are all long gone in these types of galaxies. In In the disk you've got a lot of dust and gas. Again, that's all related to what stars we see, the young stars. We see lots of gas and dust and we see lots of star formation. So we see all of that occurring in the spiral galaxies. We don't see any in the elliptical galaxies. Really in the last 10 billion years or so nothing. So if you look at an elliptical galaxy, you're not going to see any blue stars. You're not going to see any O stars, any A's, uh, O's, B's, A's, F's. You're not going to see any of those. You're going to be seeing lots of stars like the Sun. And stars that are red giant stars even more. They're going to stand out a little bit more. In terms of motion, we talked about the motion in our galaxy as to how the stars moved. And the ones in the disk, rotated around in nice circular elliptical orbits just like the planets do in our solar system. The stars in the, in the, in all the other spiral galaxies are much like that. They do the same thing. So they all orbit in nice, nice easy orbits around the center of the galaxy. Uh, yeah, you have the halo stars. Remember the halo stars are kind of moving all over the place and some are going clockwise and some counterclockwise and backwards and forward in all sorts of directions. That is all you see in an elliptical galaxy. The stars essentially have completely random orbits. So you pick out a star, it might be moving this way, it might be moving that way. So they're all just going every which, every which direction. There's no, uh, no coherent pattern to the, to the ellipticals. they just got stars going in every, every, every uh, direction. So you can think of those as like a gigantic halo. All they are is they're a galaxy that formed all halo and no disk. So something about the collisions that formed them kept them closer to what they were originally. Whereas the spiral galaxies collapse down into a disk. Now, the other one here listed is the irregular galaxies. Again, there's no, st- no structure. Uh, there are a couple different types of irregulars. You might see irregular with a Roman numeral 1 or a Roman numeral 2 after it. Uh, sort of depicting how kind of the 2s are an explosive. Not exploding galaxy, but they have an, an appearance to them. So there may be some sort of, again, collision involving, involving those. The irregular galaxies are sort of like spiral galaxies in their properties. They've got lots of young stars, they've got lots of gas and dust, they've got lots of stars forming. So they're a lot like an, a spiral galaxy in that without the disk and without the spiral arms. In terms of motion, they don't have anything coherent. They're like an elliptical galaxy in terms of motion. The stars are moving in every which direction. There's no no motion, no no coherent motion to them. So, sort of the patterns, again, the spirals and the irregulars have lots of uh, star formation, lots of young stars forming. The ellipticals have no star formation, but have stars in completely random orbits, much like the irregulars. So you'll see some patterns between the two. The main types are the spirals and the ellipticals. So many of the galaxies are one of those types, and you either see the star formation, you see young stars, a lot of blue colors to the spiral galaxies, uh, or you see the ellipticals, which look very, very red. Now if we want to try to put them together, this is what we call the tuning fork diagram. And this was done by Edwin Hubble uh, many, many years ago. Pushing, well, let's see, we identified the galaxies. are pushing like 100 years, uh, pushing 100 years ago. And what he put together was perhaps what he thought of, maybe an evolutionary sequence between the galaxies, what a galaxy might do. Now again, this was based on just how they looked. You know, how might you change from one galaxy to another? And it was done before we had a complete understanding of everything I've given, given, already given you. So you already have a deeper understanding than Hubble had when he was able to make this diagram. But you can see that there's different types of spiral galaxies. So could you get something, you know, depending on which way you want to look at it, do the spiral galaxies wind up and become, become a lenticular galaxy? Of course, then how do you expand them out to a bigger galaxy? How do you go from being a flat disk galaxy to a bigger one? Kind of hard to do, right? You, you have a disk, are you going to how do you, How do you undisk that, you know? But again, he didn't have that kind of understanding that we have quite yet. Or do you look at it the other way? You've got this big spherical galaxy. Makes a little bit more sense. You make it into a disk, it collapses down to a disk, and then somehow it picks up the spiral arms. Where do you get the gas and dust to go from here to here? You know, Where does all the gas and dust all of a sudden appear from, that you're all of a sudden from no, no stars forming to having lots of stars forming? So it really doesn't have any kind of meaning like that anymore. You know, that's what it was originally thought of. It originally thought it might be a way of how the galaxies evolved, but it really does not. It's just a way to sort of uh, summarize the classification in a simple, simple little diagram. Uh, a tuning fork diagram, Turn a tuning fork on its side, you've got the main part going here with the ellipticals, the lenticulars kind of in between, as then you split off to the two, two forks of the tuning fork, and you have the regular spirals and the barred spirals, and then the ellipticals are kind of just left over, or the ellipticals, the irregulars are kind of just left over at the end. So no real deep meaning to it, just a way of, that we've used for years now of being able to keep track of the classifications. All right, so we've gone through the different types. How are they spread out in space? What kind of patterns do we see? Let's see. Our last distance measurement was Cepheid variables. And we could measure galaxies all the way out to 25 million parsecs, 75 million light years. That little teeny tiny fraction of the size of the universe? Sounds like it's so far, though. You're getting 75 million light years away. But when you're trying to get out to 14 and a half, 13 and a half, 14 billion light years? What's 75 million? Big deal. You haven't even made your first step on the, in the journey. But you have made some important, uh, learned some important knowledge in order to be able to do that. So we need some new measurements. We need some new different types of measurements to be able to look. Most of the galaxies are more than 75 million light years away. Andromeda Galaxy is closer. Uh, some of the other nearby galaxies in our local group. But most galaxies are going to be more than that distance away. So we need different ways to be able to measure this, the different ways to be able to measure the distances. So we've got to find some new distance measurements. Because those Cepheid variables, they're bright, but they're only so bright. You get galaxies that are too far away, you're not going to be able to distinguish them as individual stars. So two of these methods are listed here. First is the Tully-Fisher relationship, which really says that there's a relationship between how the galaxy rotates, how fast it rotates, and its luminosity. So, looked at a whole bunch of spiral galaxies and you could find, you could find like like we found a relationship between the period and luminosity of the Cepheids, you found a rotate a relationship between how the galaxy rotated, how fast it rotated. That's easy to measure, right? Velocities are so easy to get in astronomy just because all you need is the Doppler effect, right? You can Take a spectrum of it, measure the shift of the lines, and boom, we know how fast it's rotating. So that's pretty easy to get. If that's related to its luminosity, that allows us to get a distance. So there's a way to get a distance here directly just by taking as long as you can see the galaxy well enough to get a measurement of the Doppler shift. How fast is one side of the galaxy moving? That gives you one side of the rotation. How fast is the other side moving? You can, you're able to get its luminosity, again, once you get the luminosity, once you know how bright something really is, the distance is easy. So once you get that, that's the hard thing to get. Once you get that, it's very easy to get the distance. So that's one way to do it. Would you use the same log formula as we have used before, or is that a different formula? It would be the same. Once you figure out that luminosity, you'd have an absolute magnitude, and you can use the same formula that we used in the last lab to get the distance. Because you'd have an absolute magnitude, you can measure an apparent magnitude, and all of a sudden you've got the distance. Yeah. A type 1 supernova. Every single type 1 supernova has the same luminosity. Remember a type 1 supernova? No. Right. It's the white dwarf star exploding. Okay. The only white dwarf stars that will explode are the ones that have right at that limiting mass. So that means that every type 1 supernova is exactly a 1.4 solar mass white dwarf star exploding. Not a 1.5, not a 1.3. You you can have a 1 solar mass white dwarf and you can put lots and lots of mass on it. It's not going any place until it gets to that limit. So the process by which those type 1 supernovae form is all exactly the same. It's all exactly the same star exploding. Not a type 2. Type 2 could be a star that's 20 times the mass of the sun or 50 times. There could be a big difference between what goes on there and how bright they'll get. Type 1 are all exactly the same. It's all a white dwarf, 1.4 solar masses that just got pushed over that limit and exploded. So it's all at exactly that same limit and that means it's the same process. Same thing happening. We should get exactly the same brightness. So this is a way to be able to measure distances a lot further out. We can see those supernovae in very distant galaxies because they're extremely bright. The only bad thing with these these two is we're starting to get more and more selective with how we can use these and not necessarily in a good way is that Tully-Fisher relationship works really good but it requires a rotation. So rotation, you gotta have a spiral galaxy, a disk galaxy that actually has some coherent rotation to it. So this won't give you the distance to an elliptical galaxy, or an irregular galaxy. It'll work fine for spirals, great for spirals, but it won't help you with those. Type 1 supernovae will work in any type of galaxy, but not that galaxy that you want the distance to. You've got to sit there and wait for the supernova to explode. So it only works in whichever ones happen to get type 1 supernovae. So you could really want the distance to that galaxy, and you could sit there and wait your whole life and it's quite possible that no type 1 supernova will go off in that galaxy. So it works. It's great. And it's great. We use it a lot for determining distances. But you can't pick. I want to determine the distances to these specific galaxies. You can't do that. Unless you've got a way to remotely detonate a type 1 supernovae from you know millions or many millions or many billions of light years away, it's not going to happen. So that's a problem with trying to use this method is that you've got to wait. You can only determine the galaxies when the type 1 supernova occurs. Once it does, you've got a very good way of getting the distance out to quite a range. So, sort of showing you what happens here. This is what happens with the spectral lines. When we look at the galaxy, we see, when we really, when we look at these distant galaxies, we don't see this. You just see the little blob. It's teeny tiny there. You don't get to see this nice grand spiral galaxy stretching out. It all gets blurred together so when the observer looks at it, they don't get to measure this side of it and this side of it directly. When you've got the most distant galaxies, you may just be seeing that little tiny blob, you know. There might be your distant galaxy. Might be a very distant spiral galaxy, but it just looks like a little blob. So when you try to take an image of that or take a spectrum of it, you can't get a spectrum of one side and the other. You might get it, you'll get a spectrum of the entire galaxy at once. So how can we measure the rotation? You can't get one side and the other side. That would be very easy to get the rotation rates. Well, what you see is when you're looking at one side, you have one side of this galaxy is coming towards us. So all the hydrogen in that is blue shifted. All the hydrogen light light is blue shifted. So it's going to be shifted a little bit more towards the blue part of the spectrum. So the light from this portion of the galaxy is shifted a little bit towards the blue. The light from the center of the galaxy as it rotates, that's not moving towards us or away from us. It's going this way, right? We're over here. It's coming across our line of sight. It has no Doppler shift. So it's going to be right where that line should be. So if that's that hydrogen line, the red hydrogen line, it's going to be exactly where it should be. No matter how fast it's moving, unless it's moving towards us or away from us in part, we're not going to see any shift. So there's no shift from the middle. And then the other side that's going away from us is shifted towards the red. So, same thing, we could take a spectrum there, we're going to get a little bump towards the red. When we're looking at these very distant galaxies, we see all of that at once. We see this portion, we see this portion, and we see this portion, so we get one big thick line. That line will be thicker or thinner depending on how fast the galaxy is rotating. If the galaxy is rotating very slowly, then this blue shifted portion will be very close to where it's supposed to be. This red shifted portion will be very close to where it's supposed to be. Everything will be almost right in the middle where it's supposed to be if the galaxy is not rotating very fast. There won't be much of a shift on this side, won't be much of a shift on this side. So, you would get a very thin line there. Not spread out very much because it's moving very slowly. If it's spinning very rapidly, So this is coming towards us very fast. This is spinning away very, very fast. Then you're going to get a bigger shift for the blue. It's going to be shifted further out. The red will be shifted further that direction. And you're going to get a big, broad line. So that gives us a way to be able to measure these velocities even of more distant galaxies where you can't see the galaxy itself. You can't see a nice beautiful image of some of these. When you're getting out to things that are 10, 12 billion light years away, that's just, it's not possible. Most of them are rotating. Uh, ours, our sun takes about 250 million years to make an orbit around, so you'd have some going a little. You're not going to have things that are whipping around it, you know, in hundreds or thousands of years. You're not going to have things, you might have some that are rotating even slower if you're talking about elliptical galaxies. Spiral galaxies, you'd be talking about that general range of what, the, what our galaxy is. Might be two, three, five times faster. Might be, you know, a half as fast or a fifth as fast but you're not going to have hundreds or thousands of times faster. It's all going to be pretty, pretty close together. It's going to be a relatively narrow range. You're not going to get a gigantic range of it. But that gives us a way to be able to measure that shift and then to use the uh, Tully-Fisher relation to get the distance. So, let's see how far out we can get now. We've got one more step to go on this ladder. We haven't quite finished it yet not going to go over all of them again. We've gone over these several times, but you have radar ranging, stellar parallax, and spectroscopic parallax got us to within our galaxy, covered a big chunk of our galaxy. The variable stars we mentioned last time got us the rest of our galaxy and starting out to some of the nearest galaxies. Tully-Fisher relationship gets us out to about 200 million parsecs, about 400, sorry about 600 million light years. and The standard candles are the type 1 supernovae. We can see those out to 1 gigaparsec, 1 billion parsecs. Now we're getting out towards the edge of the universe, right? 1 billion, billion parsecs, that's about 3, about 3.2 billion light years away. We're about a quarter of the way there. So even with all this, even with the supernovae, we're seeing about a quarter of the way out towards the edge of the universe. We still need one more method to be able to get everything. So it gets us ways that way out there, it really helps, but it's not really, it's not complete yet. They're still not getting, you know, we're still missing, you know, three quarters of the universe. We're only getting one quarter of the distance, essentially, what, three? Quarter to a third of the distance out there. And that's it, that's all that we can get, even with the bright type 1 supernovae, which are incredibly bright, and we can see those from, you know, billions, even a couple billion light years away. So we have one more method that we'll be adding on, on in here on Monday. How are the galaxies spread out? We'll start looking at this a little bit. Here's the map of some of our local, some of the galaxies right around us. These are the ones within oh, a couple million light years of the Milky Way. There's, there's a few of them. There's us here. So there's our galaxy. There's the two Magellanic Clouds. You've got a bunch of little dwarf galaxies also that orbit around our own Milky Way. So our galaxy isn't all by itself. It's got lots of little. Uh, Dwarf companions here that orbit around it. And also within that distance, you've got the Andromeda galaxy. There's M31, the Andromeda galaxy. It has another spiral galaxy over there, close to it. And it also has several dwarf ellipticals around it as well. So this is what we call our local group of galaxies. There's about a total, if you add them all up, not everything shown there, but you've got 40, 45 galaxies that are in our own little tiny local group. And that's a small cluster of galaxies. So what we're starting to see is that stars tended to cluster. We grouped stars together into different types of clusters. Galaxies like to do the same thing. They don't like to be all out there by themselves. They tend to form in groups as well, or gather into groups. So you have not just our galaxy all by itself, but you have clusters of galaxies, groupings of them. And then you have lots of area where there are no galaxies. So as we start mapping out, you know, not just our little tiny patch of the universe, where are we to scale on that? You know, Forget about us. We're, we're, we're gone in there. We're some little speck within this tiny Milky Way galaxy that you know, wouldn't even be a billionth, billionth of a pixel on that scale. So we're, we're way out of that, we're out to that scale. We've still got to go to much bigger scales to really look at the overall structure of the universe. And that's what will come up towards the end of this chapter. Alright, so this is what we see. This is our first grouping of a galaxy cluster, about 45 galaxies. There's three big spiral galaxies, our Milky Way, the Andromeda galaxy, and another spiral galaxy near Andromeda called M33, one of the Messier objects, and the rest of these, and their satellites. The rest of them are all little galaxies. In our local group, there are no No big elliptical galaxies. Lots of dwarf elliptical galaxies, tiny ones, but none of the big elliptical galaxies that we see in much larger groups. And creatively named, as with a lot of things, it's our local group of galaxies. The ones that are around us is our local little group. And that's what we call a cluster of galaxies. And what we'll see, is again, is that galaxies tend to gather in these clusters. There are going to be lots of areas where there's a lot of galaxies put together ton of galaxies together, there's going to be a lot of other ones where there's essentially no galaxies, where the universe is, which is already empty, right? The space between us and the nearest star is tremendous. Well, you've got even worse when you look at spaces between galaxies and between clusters of galaxies. There are whole big chunks of the universe where there's essentially absolutely nothing. Now let me see where I am here. Yeah. Here's another one. Here's one with an elliptical galaxy. Ours is a nothing cluster. Hate to say that, we're part of it, but it's tiny, it's, it's negligible compared to the rest of the universe. This is the Virgo cluster, a large cluster. It has a gigantic elliptical galaxy, might not look it to scale there, but that's a gigantic galaxy that dwarfs our own Milky Way, dwarfs the Andromeda galaxy. That's the main galaxy in this cluster. Much larger, we had about 45 galaxies, that's got about 3,500 galaxies. That's not the biggest cluster in the universe. That just happens to be our nearest cluster. That's just the nearest big cluster to us. So our little 45 galaxies are sort of on the very edge of this Virgo cluster. But there's a lot more galaxies there. So again, it's still trying to put everything in perspective, you know. Where are we? We're nothing. (laughs) You know, we're nothing by comparison. There's 3,500 galaxies there. We haven't begun to count all the rest of the galaxies. So that's just within the Virgo cluster. That's looking in one direction of the sky, in one grouping, one relatively set distance. We've got over 3,500 galaxies there. And yep. then we'll come back. And on Monday, I will start with Hubble's law. I don't want to try to get into that right now. But Hubble's law is going to be our last distance measure. We can actually use this to uh, determine distances out to the edge of the universe. If we can measure an object and measure its spectrum, we can then determine its, dista- its distance. And this will lead a lot into the next couple of chapters, where it tells us tells us about you know, the history and the future of the universe. So we'll be talking. I want to talk about this in detail on Monday. We'll go over that, and then we will uh, finish up finish up chapter 15 probably by then or Wednesday. So questions? Questions? Lab time! Lab time yay! Boo! yay. I don't know. Solar observations. Yeah, now it's really yuck. Okay. Don't even t- <laughs>